This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. On Friday, I always sort of have a similar tradition, and that is, you know, I, I come up with the message, I finalize the message for Sunday, and then I submit to Annie and actually a few others uh, what my title and what my description is. And I had this thought late last night that I never did that. And that's sort of a statement of my week where everything sort of feels a little off and out of whack, but a good week. It was a really good week, but that's just the way it felt. And so the fact that I didn't get my title in and my description in, you know what, that sort of makes sense with my week. But as a result, uh, I don't have a normal Annie Weshy graphic because how in the world is she supposed to do a graphic for a title she didn't get? And so uh, as a result, if, you've, if you went through my series called Daring to Do a Stanley Dale, you'd be like, hmm, I've seen that graphic before. And yeah, yes, that would be uh, the graphic from... Daring to do a Stanley Dale on on the web, you know, when this gets posted on YouTube, Vimeo, and on our website, it'll probably have a different graphic. I don't know, but this is our placeholder one uh, for today. And you know, it usually has a line like uh, episode twenty-three, and so I had to put something in there to create the artistry with it. So it says the church at Ellerslie up there. That was me, you know, filling in some space to get that color, uh, text color in there. I'm sure some of you guys are really appreciative of that. And there's my title, uh, Out of Ash. See, ash is not a positive thing for most of us. Most of you don't want to collect ash. Uh, You look for ways to dispose of it. And it's interesting because God allows ash in our life at times. And, you know, if you think about what that means, that means something fell apart that you actually cherished and it went up in flames. And yet, out of that ash, God can work in a beautiful and powerful way. And that's what this message is. Something happened this week which stirred our team here at Ellerslie. And many of us picked up uh, Lords of the Earth afresh, which is a book by Don Richardson. Many of us reflected upon uh, the Daring to Do a Stanley Dale series. And so my mind was on this like literally most of the week. And so it, it, doesn't it fit that my sermon would have something to do with that and that I would have a graphic that you know, harkens back to daring to do a Stanley Dale? So, so you guys just sort of get dragged along with me. The way Eric Ludy goes as a pastor, you guys sort of just get stuck. So even if you didn't want to think about Papua New Guinea today, you sort of get stuck thinking about Papua New Guinea. Uh, and this is a very, very precious meditation. Uh, and it's sort of cobbled together with some unique additives but from my final session in that series, which was called Daring to Care as Kusaho. And uh, very meaningful because it was the finishing touches to a 23-part series that had a great impact on my life. Uh, in fact, Dan and Sandy McConaughey would say that, I think, it, I don't know if it was the second message in the series that s- sort of confirmed for them that they needed to leave Windsor and move to Belize. 
So I've always sort of wondered, should I not have given this series? I, I just lost Sandy and Dan because of it. But as, at the same time, that's part of the beauty of this series is it's, the subtitle was because the unreached can't reach themselves. And technically, what we are being built for is not to just hang out in a salt shaker, but to be spread as salts around the world. And there is a, a certain giving up side to Christianity, which is really hard. And as a parent, when I think of training my children to dare as Stanley Dale, what do I mean by that? Does that mean I'm willing, if they are moved on by the Spirit of God, to go to the unreached, that I'm ready to let them go? And that's a great challenge. It's one thing to give the high rhetoric about serving and giving and living and dying for Jesus Christ. And it's one thing to think about it personally. It's another thing to think about it with the ones you love. And that's part of what is you know, sort of baked into this message as well. But out of ash. Now, that comes from Isaiah 61. Now, to give a little uh, idea of even Isaiah 61, this is the chapter in the Bible, which wasn't divided into chapters at the time. This is the portion of the Bible that Jesus in his hometown is going to open up and read and declare that he is the one, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And it's a rather audacious thing, but out of all the Bible, he is going to choose this passage. Now, it starts before this. However, this is a portion of it. And it's interesting because what we see then is that this is what the Messiah came to do. And Jesus himself is making that clear. I'm the one that fulfills this, and this is what I've come to do. Well, what has he come to do? To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So God is going to be glorified because Jesus is going to do a work that is going to create trees. The, the word in the Hebrew, if you've ever heard me teach on that, is terebinth. These are not just little trees. These are trees. These are, uh, in the, uh, the landscape of uh, Israel, these were known as ojigian. They were trees that were there before Israel even entered into the land. They were oftentimes 20 feet in circumference. They were massive trees. And that's the word here that is being referenced, the terebinth of Israel. And this is what God is desiring to build his people into. Mighty emblems on the landscape of the world that showcase that which was before and will always be the Almighty. We are the demonstrators of who he is in this earth. That is an incredible statement, but part of that work to create such strength is that he is going to take our ash and he is going to bring beauty out of it. He is going to take our mourning and he's going to bring joy. This is the work of grace in our life, that there is difficulty in this world. There is challenge, and if you study Christian history, you're going to see pain, you're going to see loss, you're going to see trials and tribulations, and the instinct within us is to recoil. And yet God is wanting to remind us that it's out of that that he will get glory. It's out of that that he will build us strong. And so when we embrace those trials instead of shoo them away, we actually find the secret working of the Messiah in our life. When we try and run from the difficulty, we run from the trials, we run from anything that would bring ash or mourning, 
we miss out on the work of grace, that which builds us into trees that bring glory to his name. So when things go dark, it's oftentimes hard to get perspective, which makes sense because you can't see in the dark. And when things go dark in our life, you know, you can have that great day where you're feeling really good and then suddenly you're just sideswiped. You're taken off guard by a piece of news, an occurrence, something that happens in your life that you didn't figure on. And it's almost like the lights just went out. And when you're in that situation, it can be hard to have perspective. Now, ironically, one of the things that God wants to do in us as the church is to prepare us for when the lights go out before the lights go out. That's the ideal. Now, if you're in the dark right now and you weren't prepared for when the lights go out, then a message like this can help. In other words, this is perspective in the dark. This is the truth spoken in the dark. Hey, by the way, out of that darkness is going to come an amazing revelation of light because light triumphs over that darkness every time. God will win. You will be able to see. Out of that ash, he will bring beauty. Out of that morning, he will bring joy. You see, this is the perspective that we always need to have. God wins. God takes what the enemy means for evil, and he turns it into good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He's very good at flipping the script. So for us, in the dark moments, we need to remember that. We need to recall that. Jehoshaphat, Joshua, uh, sorry, there's a lot of big J names in the Bible. Jehoshaphat, the king, is surrounded by three enemy armies. And he's a little diddly squat Judah. They have no power to overcome this incredible force that is surrounding them. And yet in the midst of that darkness, God speaks to uh, Jehoshaphat, I still wanted to call him Joshobian, but I didn't, Jehoshaphat, and he, not just to Jehoshaphat, but to his entire nation, and says, I've got this. Tomorrow you go out against them, and I will defeat them for you. You see, that's perspective in the midst of darkness, and if you believe the word of God in your darkness, even though all you see is darkness, and you believe that God will triumph through this, guess what? You can rest. You can say, but it's still dark. I know, but you can know that God's going to bring you through it. You see, Josh, Josh boy, what is the deal with that name? I don't know how that name got stuck in my turnstile, but Jehoshaphat believes God and the next morning sets his singers out in front of his military formation. His singers. By the way, those aren't the greatest you know, weapons to use your trombone and your flute you know, to defeat the enemy. And yet he's going to stick his singers out in front and because he has such confidence that God is going to win this thing. And that's precisely what we do when it's dark. My God is in control. Though I feel unstable right now, though all I can see is dark, though all I, can ha all I feel is mourning, though all I can uh, feel is ash around me, my God brings beauty, brings joy, brings victory out of this very circumstance. That is perspective in the dark. So we're going to go back to early 1969. Or actually, late 1968, sorry. We're in 1968, and we're in Papua New Guinea. And if you went through my series on Daring to Do with Stanley Dale, then you get familiar with Stanley Dale. Now, the series isn't just on Stanley Dale. 
However, he's sort of a symbol because he's like this very imperfect hero where he's a man who desires to live fully for Jesus, but he's a rather difficult man too. And if you study Stanley Dale, you're going to be like, I love that guy. I would hate to work with him, but I love that guy. And it's encouraging to me to see how God can use flawed vessels through which to reveal one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in history. This man is going to receive a task to win a people to Christ. And yet this people, arguably, even by the other missionaries in Papua New Guinea, would say what he inherited as his task was possibly one of the most difficult tasks in all of history. And this Yali people that he is going to reach needed a very specific sort of missionary to reach them. You know what they needed? Someone a little like Stanley Dale. A man who is not that big, a little short guy, who was tough as nails. And he was after their souls and would not take no for an answer. It's an incredible storyline, but you have to go back and listen to the series uh, <clears throat> to really catch the essence of it. And sorry to do a spoiler uh, right now, but we're in the dark in our story. Stan Dale has just been martyred. And it doesn't look very good in the storyline. You have this man who's going after this Yali people and then a hundred arrows uh, you know, end up killing him. I mean, this is, this is like quite the scene. It's a very heroic scene, but I'm skipping all that, right? And there was a man with him named Phil Masters and he is going to uh, be martyred as well. And it's a very heart-wrenching scene uh, to relive because we have great detail of the scene because those that are actually going to come against Stan and Phil are ultimately going to tell their tale. And so we do know what happened in that situation. But at this point in the story where, where Don Richardson, if you don't know Don Richardson, he also wrote Peace Child, Lords of the Earth, Eternity in Their Hearts. But he's a great writer. And so he is going to be one of the missionaries sent to investigate the scene and figure out what happened. And so we have his eyewitness account right here in the dark. By the way, on the right is a picture of Stan Dale. Uh, Dan McConaughey sent me a copy of a book that I'm not exactly sure how he got it, but that goes along with the Dan McConaughey legend, doesn't it? But he said there's... now. This is my best guess at a quote, okay? That there's four copies of this book that anyone knows about in existence. Three of them are in Australia, and one of them's at Prairie Bible Institute. And he, I think this is what he said, and that's the one I have. But then my next thought is, how did you get the one from Prairie Bible Institute? Because shouldn't it be there are three in Australia and then one in Belize right now? So I'm not sure about that. But he sent, and he, it could have been that he took photocopies of each of the pictures in Prairie Bible Institute, but I, I'm not exactly sure, but he sent me the whole book. And it is so powerful, this book. And it's about Standale and Phil Masters. And I think it was probably written before Don Richardson's account. But it has pictures in it, which is one of the hardest things to find of Standale, if you remember me doing this series. And so he's on the right. And doesn't that sort of look like Standale uh, in your mind, too? It's like a little more rugged than my Ernest Shackleton uh, picture that I used. I used a young Ernest Shackleton as my placeholder for Standale. And then there's Phil Masters on the left. So here's Don Richardson. He says, I knelt first among the arrows where Phil had lain and picked up one of his well-worn trekking boots. The Yali had not known how to untie the laces. They simply hacked his boots from his feet. 
I thought back to the day when Phil pleaded on our conference floor for mission approval to stake out a new claim for Christ in these wild valleys beyond Ninia. I remembered the day I saw him kiss Phyllis goodbye and leave with his hand-picked Donnie team. To 400 weeping Donnies on the Carabaga airstrip, he gave a cheery wave that said, dry your tears, beloved, you have the gospel. They don't. It had been a very costly decision. Phil would say it was worth it, even if the Church of Christ were never planted here. For the splendor of Christ, just to make the attempt was a privilege worth more than life itself. Now, there's something that happens inside of me when I read these stories, because the attitude of those that gave up their life, the attitude of their spouses is so triumphant that it makes our American Christianity look very feeble. And when you look at a statement like this, listen to this. Phil would say it was worth it, even if the church of Christ were never planted here. For the splendor of Christ, just to make the attempt, was a privilege worth more than life itself. Okay, you almost want to stop and see if you could bottle that, because I think the church could use a little of whatever that mentality is. Even if, the church, even if these people don't repent and give their life to Christ, the splendor of Christ is worth the attempt. Is he not deserving of me giving my life to at least share it with you, even if you kill me in the process and say no to it? Is he not worthy? It's sort of hard to say no to that one, isn't it? That's a profound statement. I walked 50 yards further to an almost identical bower where another hundred arrows pointed with soul-wrenching emphasis to the place where Stan had died. My mind drifted back, reliving for a moment my first conversation with Stan, we were walking together across a hillside above Carabaga, the wind in our faces. Stan, I said, I hear that you have a wealth of great poetry stored in your memory. Please recite for me the one poem that has molded your life more than any other. Stan paused, turned, looked at me, and recited, If, with stunning intensity. Then he paused again, and after a moment said, But let me add something else, Don. I've got to the place where mere words, no matter how fine, leave me cold. All I want is the reality of knowing Christ. Enjoy it, Stan, I whispered over the ground where he died. Enjoy that reality to the full, forever. So, in the storyline here, the church of Jesus Christ, this story is going to rock Christianity. It's going to shake people at a very, very deep level. And it's going to remind the church of the expenditure that is required in sharing the gospel and the risk and the hazards associated with it. But in a sense, for these missionaries down there, it feels like all goes dark and things are going to start to fall apart. And ground that had been gained with these tribal people and different tribes, not just the Yali, seem to have a reverse effect because what's going to happen is the military, the police are going to step in from Indonesia. I mean, that's not allowed. That's illegal behavior. Now, these tribal people had never seen police, didn't know that there were any international laws that they were violating. And suddenly, they're going to have this encounter with the outside world that isn't gospel-friendly. It isn't loving and kind. It's going to have guns, law, and order associated with it. And it's going to create a crisis. And the missionaries down there are going to feel this. So listen to this statement. When all goes dark, God does his very best work. Now, for those of you that are in a season which probably could be described as dark, which means you don't see how it's going to end, you don't understand how you could get out of this weighty situation, this heaviness, 
that you've been walking through. There's a turmoil, there's a trial, there's a difficulty that you feel that you're in and you can't see the exit sign. This is actually one of the most valuable real estate in your spiritual life. In fact, I could guarantee you, if you walk through this real estate with faith, you will look back on this time and see God growing you stronger than any other time in your life. Simple enunciation of my entire spiritual existence, my growth curves come in and through these dark times. That's when they happen. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that you would set your singers out in front of you? Because you do know that God's going to grow you through this, right? You see, that's the faith answer. God's in control. God knows my circumstances. He has not forgotten me. And he, even through this, will be glorified. I trust you, Lord. So that's why we rejoice. That's why we sing in prison cells. That's why we give thanks in all circumstances. Because we know our God wins. So this is a dark situation, but let's continue to sort of unpack that dark situation. Stanley Dale is shot through with over 100 arrows. He is cut up into small pieces lest he resurrect from the dead. They were so afraid. They, they, this guy was like a supernatural guy to them. So they literally are going to do that to make sure he doesn't resurrect. The Yali Valleys are destabilized by governmental retaliation to the killings, and it appears extreme violence is now the new order of the Dark Mountains. Don Richardson says it this way, as the news of the death of Phil and Stan spread to every corner of the Christian world by letter, telegram, newspaper, and radio, messages of condolences began to reach Pat and Phyllis in increasing volume. That's Pat Dale and Phyllis Masters. Tens of thousands of people in many lands began to pray for the Yali tribe, people who would not otherwise have known of the tribe's existence. The Sang Valley beca suddenly became one of the most prayed for valleys on earth. Now at last, many predicted, with so much prayer concentrated upon the Yali people, surely they cannot long remain resistant to the gospel of Christ. Something will have to give. At the same time, from the Helic and Balim valleys, from the Yali clans north of the Snow Mountains at Angaruk, and from more distant areas in lowland swamps south of the mountains came rumors that Wickboon warriors, exulting over their success in killing Phil and Stan, were now daring neighboring peoples to follow their example and to kill all Duongs, that would be like the white people or the foreign people, within their reach, including those who called themselves the government, whoever that was. The government, they had to be bad. Don Richardson continues, as Frank and I, so this is after Frank, I don't remember Frank's last name, but Don and Frank are going to be with the police, uh, the Indonesian police, as they come in to bring justice in the situation, and they're pleading with the policemen not to use violence. It's like we have worked for so long to try and bring a peace message. These people are all about violence. That's their entire world. They're, they're cannibals, headhunters. This, this is like a, a very ugly situation. And the last thing we want to do is come in the same spirit. We want to come in an opposite spirit. However, the police don't have the same sensitivities that Don and Frank do. And there's going to be shooting, bullets flying, people dying. It's a disaster. As Frank and I topped the pass leading back into the hillock, we paused and looked back down into the Wickboon Bowl far below. Can you think of any way, Frank, I asked pensively, that these impossible ruptured relations could ever be healed? Frank shook his head. No, Don, I can see no way. Apart from some unexpected act of God, the door to this valley will remain closed for two or three generations. 
Okay, that's when the lights go out. That's when you feel like Stan and Phil's death was meaningless. It's like, what was the good of all of this? To go through pain, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, but you can go through pain if you know that greater strength is coming out of it. But if you feel that only greater weakness is coming out of your pain, it's very difficult to endure, which is why faith is so critical. You know, when you're working out in a gym or you're exercising as an athlete and you're feeling that lactic acid buildup and you're feeling the burn in your muscles, you can have a little smirk, even though it's painful and you want to stop, because you know that's what's growing you stronger. As a Christian, you must know that always. You must know that the lactic acid in your spirit, man, that buildup of agony and pain is actually part of the platform that God wants to send forth his greatest strength into your life from. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You could say where there's ash, where there's mourning, where there's trial, where there's tribulation. You see, God isn't an author of confusion. God is not the one that's tempting us. God is not the one that's stealing, killing, and destroying. That isn't God. So when the enemy is abounding in his work, you need to recognize that God doesn't sit on his thumbs. It says, when that evil comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against it. And this is how God works. Enemy moves, God responds. Even if you can't feel it, see it, understand it in your life at this exact moment, you need to trust that that is precisely what he is doing. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other words, the scales always tip in God's favor. They'll always tip in the favor of your growth and victory and never in your decline. The enemy can do all he wants against the believer. However, if the believer responds in agreement with God, grace will always tip in the, in the strength position. We'll always win. So remember how I said we're at the, I started by making a statement about the very beginning of uh, 1969. That was, there's two stories going on here. So we had in 1968, I don't remember the date, if it was September, October, but it's been a few months since then. And so all this violence is sort of awakened and it seems that the relations between the missionaries and the, uh, the tribal uh, men and women has been ruptured and it's going to take two to three generations to repair it. That's rather disheartening on paper if you were to think that through because these men and women have spent so much of their life trying to win these people that to see something like that happen would be so disheartening. However, God does his best work in the dark. And so December 31st, 1968 is going to become a very significant day in the storyline of this entire island uh, region of the world. And we're going to say it's the tragic loss of six more. It is going to only appear to get worse in the storyline. That's why it's a funny statement for me to say this is like a key moment. It's like, yeah, Eric, it's key for turning out even more lights. I could see a little glimmer of light over here, and then that light went off too. So here's a guy named Menno Voth who's a pilot, a missionary pilot. And we have a family named the Newman family. That's Gene and Lois Newman. And I don't remember all the names of their kids, but I do remember this guy's name. His name is Paul. And he's going to become a key character in the storyline of 
Papua New Guinea and the church being awakened in Papua New Guinea. Don Richardson says it this way, with the right wing gone, Mike Papa Hotel, believe it or not, that's the name of a plane, whiplash downward in a spew of high-octane gasoline. The left wing was ripped off by another tree in the tail section just behind the cabin was snapped off by a 70-degree slope of flinty shale. So you have uh, Menovoth who's actually taking, flying the, uh, the Newman family to another base, an, a, a place of operation, and they had just had, I think, lunch or dinner with the Richardsons, the guy that's actually writing this, the day before. And they get caught in low-lying fog. He loses his place and ends up going down. The fuselage screeched down over the shale and slammed against a hedge of young trees, preventing it from plunging into the Sang River. The wail of shredding aluminum died under the explosive whoosh of a gasoline fire. Cracking flames jetted through the control panel and burst in through the two ruptured doors, incinerating, melting. Nine-year-old Paul Newman, sitting far in the back of the cabin, saw the pilot and his own family engulfed. He unbuckled his seatbelt as flames hissed toward him, blocking his escape through the doors. He looked behind him and saw a gaping hole where the tail section had been. Frantically, he squeezed out through a tangle of broken cables, sliding, rolling, crawling, and finally running. He escaped barely ahead of the spreading inferno. Loss, loss, and more loss. So that's seven more that have died. Do you know that this was 800 yards where Stan and Phil were martyred? 800 yards, that's where the plane went down. The odds of that are like one in a trillion. It is so ridiculously impossible that they would have landed this close. This was the very beach where it all started, and then they kept moving back 800 yards to where they finally died. This is like a marker for a massive event in Christian history already, and now this plane goes down and goes into a, a blaze, and one little boy slips out the back. All the tribe, the Yali, that just killed Stan and Phil are watching this from up on a high hill, and they see this little white boy sneak out of the plane and start climbing up towards them. Loss, loss, and more loss. And now a nine-year-old boy is lost just a stone's throw from where Stan and Phil was, were brutally murdered three months earlier. Okay, if you're a betting person at this exact point, remember there's a vengeance towards any duong, and there's a little helpless boy. His parents can't even do anything about it. They just died, and he is now right there, and no one knows that he's there. And he is surrounded by warriors that are not too happy with his presence. Let's just put it that way. And so if you're a mom, you could just imagine how that would feel. And yet, I mean, she gave up her life for Jesus. That was the last thing she did. And now her son is there in this very, very challenging situation. And as a parent, you can do nothing but release him unto God. So here's uh, Don Richardson's uh, telling of the story of Paul Newman. Paul had no inkling that he was climbing a hill only 800 yards downstream from the place where Stan and Phil spent their last night, or that hundreds of eyes watched him now from lofty mountain ridges, eyes of people who three months earlier hounded Stan and Phil to death, and when, who two months earlier lost five of their own number to guns of patrolmen. In the normal course of Yali tradition, those people would relish a chance to exact vengeance for their five dead brothers especially upon one lone unarmed figure. Then Paul saw the bow and arrows in the man's hand. So I'm skipping through this story. This is actually quite a long story. But 
there is going to be one man, and his name is Kusaho, and he's an older man, that had begged those same warriors not to kill Phil and Stan three months earlier. And he had felt like there was, he was go, they were going against the gods, if you will, by doing it. Something was wrong about it. And yet, and all the tribe had felt that. Like afterwards, they had this feeling that they'd never had before, like they had violated something. They didn't violate their own law, but they felt like they had violated some law, like they were, had stood against God somehow. Even though they didn't understand all that, they lived in a, a, a polytheistic, many-gods concept, they felt like they had violated something, and they felt like the five warriors that had been killed was a judgment from that spiritual realm against what they had done. And Kusaho, this older man, when he sees this young boy, feels like this is the opportunity to make right what they had made wrong. So he goes to protect this boy. Then Paul saw the bow and arrows in the man's hand, and he started with fear. The killing of Mr. Dale and Mr. Masters was still fresh in his mind. Instinctively, Paul held his hand out in front of him and cringed. No, mister, he pleaded. Don't shoot me. Kusaho understood not a word, but the gesture was plain. He laid down his weapons and held out his hands, palms up. Paul relaxed. Kusaho looked over his shoulder, afraid that his brothers might see the boy and return to kill him for Kumi's sake. But the mist hid everyone else from view. How very, very strange, Kusaho mused. After my friends killed the two Duongs, I wished I had welcomed them into my own yogwa and tried to protect them from the savagery of my own people. Now, so unexpectedly, I have opportunity to do what I wanted to do before, protect a duong. A little boy duong this time. It's as if someone understood my wish and arranged to fulfill it in this strange, strange manner. Don't cry, little boy, he said to Paul, taking him by the hand. Don't cry. I'm going to take care of you. Of course, Paul didn't speak the language, but that's, that's what he said. As Paul trembled with cold, Kusaho slipped an arm around his shoulder and looked straight into the small face, wet with teardrops and rain. Wherever have you come from, Kusaho asked in the only language he knew besides the language of love. I have no idea what your world is like or where it is. If I knew where it was, I would try to take you there. So as we skip forward to Kusaho's caring form, it's been a couple days, and now you have the rescue crew that has now realized that they must have gone down. There's something, either their, their radio went out, but they needed to send a search party. There's no response, there's no communication. So then they, they hear this. I found the wreckage, he radioed, and missionaries listened by a hundred transceivers throughout Irian Jaya breathed prayers of gratitude and tensed in horror as they heard the pilot continue. What is left of the aircraft is badly burned, and the wreckage is located right in the center of the upper Seng Valley, only a few hundred yards downstream from Stan and Phil's last campsite. How incredible! we thought as we heard the news at Kumur, far to the south. Of the dozens of valleys a lost pilot could enter by mistake along the southern face of the snow mountains, why did God allow Menno to enter that valley? I remember the William Cowper poem Stan used to quote so often. In fact, I could almost hear his voice repeating it. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. I shuddered as I imagined Yali cannibals dragging Jean or Lois or Menno or those four delightful children out of that smoking wreckage. And just the day before the crash, the Newman family shared a meal with us at Kumur. We prayed together for safety as they continued their journey. And now this, this horrible tragedy. Unbelievers would scoff and say, where was your loving God? Has not the Almighty committed a heinous blunder toward, people, toward his people who loved and served him? 
Lord, I prayed, struggling against unbelief, I don't believe you make blunders. Somehow, God, confirm the reality of your providence in this tragedy and encourage us who remain to carry on your work. He was, in fact, already doing just that, and far more wonderfully than any of us could have dreamed. I feel like that quote up there says something that I wish we could just have access to in our dark moments. Many of us understand what Don Richardson would be experiencing in a situation like this, where he doesn't have any explanation. How could God allow this plane to go down? These people were serving him. We've already had enough tragedy in this zone. How could it happen and why there? I mean, are we being mocked? I mean, God, where are you? And yet that follow-up statement, somehow God confirmed the reality of your providence in this tragedy and encourage us who remain to carry on your work. He was in fact already doing just that and far more wonderfully than any of us could have dreamed. God does exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Now, what you need to realize is he doesn't just do that when everything's easy and good and wonderful. He does that right now when things are dark. This is when he does his best work. You know that stuff that is exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think? Yeah, that's happening when the lights are out. That's when he does his best stuff. You know when the lights went out at the cross? Pretty dark moment in history, if you you want to say it that way. The greatest man that ever lived in human skin comes down. He only loved. He only gave. He only healed. He only served. And yet we crucified him. And he breathes his last. That's a dark moment, guys. And yet, what is God doing in that dark moment? How about the three days that follow? What's God doing in that dark moment? He's crushing the head of sin. He's destroying the power of hell in the grave. You see, the greatest work happens in that stretch, in those darker moments of our life where we can't seem to see through it to understand how God could allow this. When all the whys are spurting out of our soul and the enemy's sponsoring them, how come, why did he do this? This is when you stand in faith. This is when we as believers grow strong. This is when we become mighty terebinth. It's in these times. It's in these stretches. Don Richardson continues. Paul saw the aircraft departing. So there was first an aircraft that comes down to inspect, that flies over and sees the wreckage. And so Paul runs out to the top of a rock and is waving his hands. Paul saw the aircraft departing. Despairing, he sank down on the rock and buried his face in his hands. They came so close, and now they're gone away again, he sobbed. The sight of the boy's despair was too much for Kusaho, who still hovered atop a high ridge like a guardian angel. Holding his bow and arrows high above his head, he raced down the mountain trail, shouting, Don't cry, little boy. I'm coming back. I'll stay right beside you. Let them shoot me if they want to. Moments later, his arms were around Paul again. Don't be sad. They'll come back again. But even if they don't, I'll take care of you. You'll learn to enjoy our food. And if your clothes wear out, I'll get you a gourd and put a hundred loops of rattan around you. Then you'll be a splendid young man indeed. (laughs) I love that line. Don Richardson continues. So this is skipping forward to a helicopter is going to come to investigate the situation and Paul is going to run down. Kuso, he wants Kusaho to come with him, but Kusaho can't go down to run into these, these people. Uh, and so he has to say goodbye to Paul. 
Come with me. I want you to meet my friends, the boy urged. I want them to see who it was that took care of me. Kusaho thought Paul wanted him to get in the helicopter and go away with him to Mulia. Saddened because the boy he loved was about to leave him, Kusaho sighed. If only I dared go with him. Paul pulled more urgently and Kusaho followed him a few more steps, his heart torn in two directions. But his brothers came running and forcibly restrained him. Shoo, they said to Paul, run down to your friends. We won't let you take our brother away from us. Paul gripped Kusaho's hand one last time and ran down the hill. So now I have to skip forward again. When Paul comes to them, I mean, first of all, they're shocked to see Paul alive. I mean, this is an amazing moment uh, for everyone. But then he's like, how did you survive? And Paul says that there was a man that cared for him and that protected him. And so this is a moment when the missionaries now are, are realizing, it's almost like God is downloading to them an idea. And they have this idea to actually somehow say thank you to Kusaho. And they had taken a prisoner, his name was Sel, and back, and I don't know where he was, but he was in some jail system, and they thought he was taken up to the gods. You know, this helicopter comes down and takes him up, but it's like, oh, and so they don't want to get in a helicopter. They have no idea what happens to you uh, when you get into a helicopter. And so they have this thought of going and getting Sel and bringing him back as a thank you, but also to give gifts to Kusaho as a statement, thank you for caring for him. So that's where we're at. Moments later, they landed in the center of Kibi Village. Frank unsnapped Sel's seatbelt, helped, helped him out of the hovering craft, and led him out from under the whirling props. Kusaho and a few others stood at a distance, leaning against the strong wind created by the fearful machine. When the Yali saw their friend Sel running to them, their eyes opened wide in surprise. They ran forward and embraced him. Frank waved to catch their attention and then deposited a pig, a number of steel axes, and some knives on the ground as gifts for Kusaho and for any who helped him to take care of Paul. Then he climbed back into the copter and immediately the pilot lifted up and out of the wickboon bowl, racing against fast clothing, closing weather. In the valley below, Kusaho watched the helicopter vanish among clouds. They understand now, he beamed. At last they know who I am. They know I love them and they have responded to me with love. This is this key moment, and this one man, Kusaho, is going to be used by God in this valley. For whatever reason, he is wired differently. And he seems to know that it is wrong to kill Stan and Phil. And he seems to know that it's right to protect this little boy. And now somehow this communication between these duongs and him has been established, even though it's vague you see, the Yali know that they're trying to get a message to them. It's this, this new way of living, this new way of thinking. But they're scared of that. And so they, they, they want to kill anyone who would try and mess up their ancient uh, thought patterns, their ancient ways of doing things. They know how to appease the spirits. And if these, these duongs come in with their new message, we could all die because we are agreeing with something outside of our ancient traditions. And yet something is triggered inside of Kusaho where he's like, I want to know what they have to say. Thousands of Christians around the world were praying daily for the time when the killers of Standale and Phil Masters would surrender to the love of Jesus Christ. We knew it was only a matter of time, but which time? We wanted to go in at the right moment, not too early and not too late. For although Kusaho and his brothers had shown kindness to Paul Newman, how could we be sure of a welcome from other families and clans in the Seng? So this is a challenging thing. If you're a missionary and you just saw Phil and Stan die the last time someone in, went in there, could you imagine being the next wave to go in? So even though Kusaho seemed to protect little Paul, 
Who's ready to raise their hand to go in next and try and share the gospel with them? This is a huge moment. So Don Richardson continues the story. Guess where I have been, Luliop, Wayo explains. There's two Yali warriors that were in Stan's village. The Sang Valley. I told the people there not to be afraid. I assured them that the government planned no further action against them. I told them also that all the villages in the Helic Valley have welcomed teachers of the gospel. And I said, if you too want teachers, let me know and I'll pass on the word to Luliap. What did they say? Luliap asked eagerly. Kusaho said he wants you to come. And the others? And the others? I know of no one in Kibi village who would attack you, even though they still don't understand what the gospel is all about. I can't be sure about the other villages you will pass, to, pass through on your way. Weo said thoughtfully, I think the time has come, Luliop said. Weo, I've never been to the Sang Valley on foot. Will you show me the way? Indeed I will. When do you want to make the journey? So guess who's going to risk their life? The very disciples of Standale, who watched his life, who saw him risk his life, are going to be the ones to say, let's not have his blood be wasted. Let's go in the way he did. And that's what we call daring to do as Stanley Dale. What's the good of an example of a man like this if we don't, like Weo and Luliop, say, me too. I want to go in. But you do know there are risks. You do know what happened to Stan and Phil. Yes. But Jesus, is he not worthy? Don Richardson continues, crossing the Sang Pass at 10,000 feet, seven potential martyrs descended quickly to Rocky Yendol Beach, where two piles of white cane shafts still served as tombstones for Stan and Phil. Pressing on, they passed boldly through the midst of Sengabut village, now partially rebuilt. Wickboon tribesmen burst out of their yogas to stare at them uncertainly, heavy brows beating with concern. No one raised a hand against them. Walking straight and tall under a bright mountain sun, the seven climbed a steep slope beneath ponderous scrutiny from Wolohovac and Bahobol villages. Finally, they walked unscathed into Kibi village, where Kusaho welcomed them. Stay with me. Tomorrow I will kill a pig and stage a feast in your honor. You must tell me two things. First, where is that little boy who fell out of the sky right into my lap? And second, what is this message called the gospel? Is it really a more authentic guide than the Winamelelech? What is it about the gospel that made those two duongs determined to come here even at the risk of their lives? Luliap smiled, scratched Kusaho under the chin, that's a way of communicating, and began his reply. At the entrance to Kibi village, Kusaho stood, his arms outstretched in welcome. Sorry, I'm fast forwarding, guys, if you're wondering the strange uh, connectivity of the message. At the entrance to Kibi village, Kusaho stood, his arms outstretched in welcome. I realized when I saw him that what I had imagined was true. So now Don Richardson gets the privilege of meeting Kusaho. Weighed in the light of cultural differences, Kusaho must be regarded as one of the most unique human beings on earth. In his untaught compassion towards strangers, his clear-sighted anticipation of unknown truth, and his willingness to differ from the majority, Kusaho towered above his peers higher perhaps than many great men in our culture have towered above us. So I'm going to add a new layer to this, and that is daring to do as Lois Newman. And this is something that I was reading this week because of Dan's communication with me. All of us on our staff, like I said, have sort of read through the end of Lords of the Earth again, or maybe listened to Daring to Karis Kusaho. There's a reason for that. 
And so we've all been sort of freshly reminded and stirred in regards to this story. And so Gene and Lois Newman were the parents of Paul. And if you just imagine the tension of a mom in this situation, would you be willing to train your son at nine years old to be used by God as the tool to awaken a cannibal village to the gospel? Okay, you could follow me on that. That that isn't probably what you would choose for your child. And yet Lois chose it. I just want to say it that way. Lois chose that. Let me uh, say this is found written in the flyleaf of her Bible. Lord, I give up my own purposes and plans, all my own desires, hopes, and ambitions, whether they be fleshly or soulish. It says sourish, but it's supposed to be soulish. And accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. I hand over to thy keeping all my friendships. All the people who I love are to take second place in my heart. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Sort out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I want to be like Lois Newman. And any parents that choose to take their four children, I know in the picture it only had three, and that was because I think one of the children wasn't yet born yet in that picture. But to take your children into a place like that comes with high risk. You know, to live for Jesus Christ brings your family into high risk no matter what generation. And we're somewhat dimmed in our understanding of that because of how easy our culture is to to live out as a Christian. Ironically, we don't live very boldly because of that. However, this has been a part and parcel of the journey the entire while that Christianity has existed. Gaining a bit of perspective, Don Richardson says, future historians of Christianity will remember the advance of the gospel into central Irian Jaya as one of the greatest breakthroughs in the saga of our faith. In spite of awesome geographical barriers and the imponderability of Irian Jaya's complex languages and Stone Age cultures, a relative handful of missionaries have established some 1,400 churches in less than 25 years. These thriving tribal congregations average at least 200 members each. Whew, that is remarkable. They are pastored entirely by tribal church leaders and are already sending their own cross-cultural missionaries to other tribes. In fact, they have sent out approximately one such missionary for every eight church members. It would not surprise me if investigation revealed that to be an all-time historical record for missionary zeal. One missionary for every eight people in a church. I think they have us beat. That's remarkable. But that's what is going to come out of this. In other words, you could question Standale's vigor, his willingness to lay down his life, and you could say, well, he left behind a wife and children. You could question Phil Masters and what he was doing. What was he thinking? to go into a situation like this. Doesn't he realize that he has a wife and children? You could question Gene and Lois Newman. You could question Menno Voth, all of them leaving behind children. And you could say, they should have thought this through. And you could also say, they did. They did think it through. You see, when we follow Jesus, we recognize that it comes with challenge. It comes with difficulty, but we also know that that same difficulty is what God is going to use to build this church into terebinth. 
and to reveal his glory unto the nations. Are you glad that Lois Newman was willing to risk her own life and the life of her family to share Jesus? And I would say, Kusaho for one, would say yes. The Yali people that came to Christ because of that would say, yes, thank you, Lois and Jean. Job 19.25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. In every situation, what we're really talking about is redemption. We talk about ash and beauty coming out of it. That's redemption. God taking something that looks ruined, destroyed, and it needs some kind of resuscitation, some kind of resurrection. That's what God specializes in. And in the end, we will see it. Our Redeemer lives, and He will stand. That redemption will be a beacon light to the nations in the end. Look what our God did. So here's the book that, uh, I mean, you can try and look it up, uh, you know, because there could be other copies, but this is the one that Dan said there's four copies of, right? So it's called To Perish for Their Saving by a lady named Helen Manning. There's no date in it, which is really weird, so you can't, we can't quite figure out when this was written, but some of the data seems to have been corrected by Don Richardson when I was reading it. Uh, like she says that Paul was 10, and he says very clearly that Paul was 9. In other words, so I'm not exactly sure when this was written, but my guess is it was written right after the fact. This is what Helen Manning says. Midst the deep sorrow surrounding the tragedies, there was suddenly bright hope for the gospel in that dark valley of death. As at the cross, where the starkest exposure of human sin was met with the highest expression of forgiving love, God's saving grace is at work. And this is a poem that she had right at the most crucial moment in the book, right? Where, you know, all the, uh, the, the revelation of God's providence has come out. There is no gain but by loss. You cannot save but by a cross. The corn of wheat to multiply must fall into the ground and die. Wherever you ripe fields behold, waving to God their sheaves of gold, be sure some corn of wheat has died. Some soul there has been crucified. Someone has wrestled, wept, and prayed, and fought hell's legions undismayed. That's pretty good. Thank you, Helen Manning. There's a picture of Kusaho, obviously a rather rare one. And so he's the one in the middle being propped up. Isn't that a precious man? Aren't you a Kusaho fan? I mean, Don Richardson's description of him just bonds me to him. And it's like, I love this man. And it's, it's so precious to think that he gave his life to Christ and we'll get to meet him someday. But to me, these people are like superstars. Have you ever had that? You know, I used to really want to meet John Elway. Uh, and he was sort of the, the one guy that's like, who would you like to meet, Eric? If you could meet anyone, well, John Elway would be pretty cool. And I've moved past that a little. That's no offense. I still would probably enjoy meeting John Elway. Uh, he actually, one of my buddies went in and had a business meeting with John Elway, and he signed, when God writes your love story, when I talk about John Elway, he signed that page. And I think I lost the book, though. It shows you how much I valued it, right? Uh, but to me, to meet some of these characters, like, I, I want to talk with Standale. I want to meet Phil Masters. I want to talk with their wives. I want to talk with their children. There's something about this that speaks my language. So this is an email that I received this week. Dear Eric Ludy and Ellerslie team, my name is Paul Newman. 
eldest son of Jean and Lois Newman, missionaries to Papua New Guinea in the 1960s. Last month, I started a book project to write about the character of Stan Dale and ran across your podcast, Daring to Do as Stanley Dale. So he's coming tomorrow uh, to the campus. And that's, you can sort of see why we as a team are stirred on this point. And it just like touches us in a very personal way. It's like a gift to us, just like it was a gift to Kusaho. To labor in this in these fields is hard. It almost seems like it'd be more romantic in Papua New Guinea. It's hard in Windsor. You don't always see the impact uh, that you're making. But to, to recognize that God is overseeing these things and bringing stories about, is a, it's a beautiful gift, I think, to us. And to remind, I think that's why Dan is... Gotten, he's like all excited. He has all this data that he's ready to give to, to Paul. And that's, isn't that, uh, Dan, by the way, do I have blood on my, my lip? I feel like I, I'm, I'm bleeding right in front of you guys. It's probably some symbolic thing, tasting blood in my mouth uh, as I talk about this. Uh, but it's, it's a unique love language for us as a team that I feel like God is communicating in this and reminding us to dare to do as Stanley Dale, to dare to do as Lois Newman, to dare to do as Phyllis Masters, to dare to live a life that truly is befitting the splendor of our King. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.